Father, as we worship together this morning, we know that we are joining with millions of others around the world. Of course, uh, the hours are different, but with you, time has no significance. And uh, we realize, Lord, that uh, we are the church uh, united, that we are brothers and sisters in Christ, whether we are meeting in California or in Caledonia. And we know, Lord, that uh, your spirit is at work in the hearts of your people, building your church wherever it is. And we ask, Lord, that you will create in us hearts that are willing to listen and to obey your voice. We thank you, Lord, for the Sunday school here this morning and for the service which is transpiring at this hour. And we ask for your special presence in every class and in the service and your anointing upon, uh, every, upon the message and upon every lesson. We ask for your blessing here this hour, for your spirit to minister to us, meeting each need, whatever that may be. Strengthen our faith, O Lord, and help us to be faithful to you as we live the day, this day, and as we proceed into the week before us. I thank you, Lord, for those that you have brought here from distant places, and trust your special blessing upon them too. In Christ's name, amen. Turn in the scripture to Exodus chapter 4, fourth chapter of Exodus. I'd like to read from verse 27 through verse 31 of Exodus chapter 4. Now the Lord said to Aaron, Go to meet Moses in the wilderness. So he went and met him at the mountain of God, and he kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him, and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of the sons of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. He then performed the signs in the sight of the people. So the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord was concerned about the sons of Israel, that he had seen their affliction. They bowed low and they worshiped. I mentioned to you last time that God sent Moses and his family out into the wilderness, headed out towards Mount Sinai. And in the passage we're reading here this morning, Aaron is sent by God also to Mount Sinai. And I, I noted the fact that from where Moses was and where Aaron was when they began the journey, to go by way of Mount Sinai was not the most direct route. The most direct route would have been to go by the way of the wilderness of Shur, which is the more northerly line that's drawn on there. That would be 100 to 150 miles shorter, probably, in total distance. But instead, Aaron journeyed down parallel probably to the Gulf of Suez here down towards Mount Sinai from the delta of the Nile and Moses had traveled from the land of Midian around the top of the Gulf of Aqaba and parallel to that down towards Mount Sinai. Now again as I mentioned before everybody is not in absolute total agreement as to where Mount Sinai that was is referred to in this passage is located. But I mentioned to you also that the tradition that is held for thousands of years, literally, is the mountain which is today called Jebel Musa, the mountain of Moses. 
and all other mountains have, have only a few speculators who are interested in it, somebody who found some kind of a archaeological find of some sort and thinks that that somehow links this mountain to the expedition. But everything uh, for thousands of years points to the mountain far in the south in the Sinai wilderness. And so they're making a trek which total will be a distance in terms of where Moses began until Moses ends up in the delta of probably nearly 400 miles. Actually, Aaron will walk further because he will walk from the delta all the way down to Mount Sinai and back, which that round trip is 500 miles. So uh, remember, no automobiles, no trains, no planes, uh, probably on foot the whole way. So it was uh, a bit of a task that we're referring to here in this particular passage. Now last week we noted that God had dealt with Moses in a very, very important issue. God had called him and God had empowered him, but there was yet an issue that needed to be dealt with. He had failed to circumcise his youngest son, Eliezer, and so we had that strange passage that we looked at last week between verse 24 and verse 26, including verse 24 and verse 26. And the act was performed and the Spirit of the Lord moved on. And what's interesting is that Moses, by that act, was now ready for the path that God was setting before him which would lead him to become the greatest prophet of God in history and would lead him to become the human writer of more of the Holy Scripture than any other person. Amazing when you think about that. A man whose name will be better known than most of the other men or women of Holy Scripture. A man whom Israel still holds in high regard even 4,000 or 3,500 years later. As we also noted last week, following his near-death experience there in the wilderness, the evidence is that Moses sent his wife and his children back to Jethro rather than traveling on with his family to, to carry out this great task which was going to incorporate a tremendous amount of his time and of his energy. Uh, he sent his family back. And I, I read you uh, passages of scripture, or one specific one, that seems to uh, make that clear uh, to us. Now he's traveling on alone. I don't think anybody was with Moses now. When he sent his wife and his children back, I think he sent who, whoever was with them, you know, whatever auxiliary person, servants or whatever, uh, went back with them to protect the family. And so I think Moses is now moving on alone and on foot. And he arrives at the base of Mount Sinai. And there he stops. Because God holds him there. And I don't know whether it was hours or days later, he sees someone coming, and that someone, of course, is Aaron, his brother. And certainly he is reminded, if he hadn't already been purposely counting on the fact that God had promised that Aaron would come, he was at this point at least reminded that God had promised that Aaron would meet him there at the mountain of God. And I think he was overjoyed to see him. I think that any of us who might be called to do a specific task for God, and it's a task that seems to have some uh, emotional stress, maybe even physical danger involved, 
we're always happy if someone will join us in that task. And certainly for Moses, as reticent as we have seen him to be, particularly at the burning bush, it was a delight for him to have his brother come to join him. They had a lot of catching up to do, of course. (laughs) It says simply that he kissed him. In that he kissed him is the total account, certainly, or or if you could go there and and witness it with, you know, eyewitness video or something and and bring about what happened, you, you would discover that he kissed him means they spent hours catching each other up on what had been going on in their lives because they were almost strangers to one another having had no contact, certainly, for at least 40 years. Now, what about Aaron? Remember, Aaron is the elder brother. He's three years older than Moses. Now, we are not told what, Moses, what Aaron was doing at all in Egypt before he went down to meet Moses. We're simply told that God spoke to Aaron. Aaron heard and Aaron responded, which I think, first of all, means Aaron was walking with the Lord to begin with. So he could hear his voice and he'd be willing to respond. But what was Aaron? Was he one of the elders of Israel? Maybe. How in the world was he able to just pick up and walk out of Egypt? After all, they were in slavery. They were in bondage to build cities and buildings. How could he just pick up and walk right out of the country as big as life? Well, we don't know. But certainly God enabled him to do that. And... Although Aaron, I think, suspected that God isn't going to come and speak specifically to him and then send him on a long journey down into the desert just for a family reunion. Now, we may travel long distances for family reunions, and that's perfectly good. But for out of the blue, God to personally speak to Aaron and say, go off and meet Moses, your brother, whom you haven't seen for 40 years, down here at this mountain that I'll lead you to, I think Aaron was suspicious that there was more to it than that. That that God had a specific purpose in him performing this task, but I don't think he had any idea of the magnitude of the mission that God was sending him on. I think he was a bit dumbfounded when Moses said to him, this is the word of the Lord, and these are the signs that God has given to me to validate this word. I think Aaron was just totally dumbfounded. I think he probably said, tell me it again, show me again. You know, I, it was just totally amazing to this man, I believe, as his brother explained the mission. Did Aaron have fears? Did Aaron have questions? Was he human? <laughs> Certainly he had fears. And certainly he had misgivings about this assignment. But we are not told any of those. We're simply told they went to Egypt. In fact, you you read the first five verses of, of words of verse 29. Then Moses and Aaron went. Think, in those five words, you have the story of two brothers walking 250 miles. Summed up in those five words is at least two weeks of time. Can you imagine what did they talk about as they walked shoulder to shoulder on the route back to Egypt? Did they share their fears? Did they share their misgivings? Did they kind of bolster one another? Was Moses put in the place of now trying to encourage his brother after Moses himself had been in great need of encouragement and thus God had appeared to him so many times? 
really, I think most of us realize that one of the greatest ways that we become stronger is trying to help another, especially through a battle we may have had. One of the best ways to learn is to teach. Because if you've got to teach, you've got to learn in order to do it. And one of the blessings of teaching is being forced to learn and to study and to apply. And certainly that's what Moses was doing now relative to Aaron. The two were headed towards one of the great spiritual encounters of all history. One of the watershed events of the Bible. And these two men will be the catalyst for probably one of the best known stories of all history. Now, I think there's a little bit of an in insight that we can get just from looking at this passage in general, and, and, and really several of these chapters here uh, collectively. And, and in it we see, I think, supported the idea that God is the ultimate author of the scripture. Now, if you've ever read history, and I know most of you have read probably a great deal of history, you, you look at the lives of various historians. And if those historians are including something that they have done, let's say you're talking about Julius Caesar or Thucydides or, or one of these historians who are talking about events that they have been involved in in the past, they do their dead level best to paint themselves in glowing terms. They don't talk about their foibles and their failures. They don't talk about their fears and, and, and their failures. I, I said that. They talk about how well they have done and how brilliant was their planning and their thinking. But when you read this, what do you find? First of all, you find that Moses describes his fears, Moses describes his failures, and Moses says nothing about Aaron's fears and nothing about Aaron's failures in, in the passages we're looking at here. To me, that's a testimony to the fact that God's the author of this <laughs> because it's the exact opposite of what human nature would be. I would cover up my failures and paint everybody else's in neon lights. You know, it makes me look better, right? That's human nature. But Moses here puts the story in such a way that Aaron looks like a stalwart person. And Moses a kind of a, you know, wishy-washy person at first. Uh, eventually, of course, some of the failures of Aaron will show up, but uh, I don't think it's because Moses delighted in, in writing them. When they arrived in the Nile Delta, they gathered the tribal leaders of Israel. Now, how in the world did they do that? Well, I think there was a process involved. I think the word had to be spread. These leaders had to be able to gather in one place. Was that simple to do? Probably not, really. They were in bondage. They had jobs to do. They couldn't just pick up and walk off whenever they felt like it. They couldn't go to their boss and say, I want five days off. I've got to go over and have a meeting. No. So some, somehow God enabled this to happen. Was it clandestine? Maybe. We don't know. But they gathered together and... Aaron acting as spokesman. God had sent him. Uh, you, 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 Moses, you feel like you're unskilled in speech? Okay, Aaron will be your mouthpiece. And so Aaron delivered the message that God had given to Moses. And then Moses performed the signs and the wonders before the Israelites that they might see the word of God confirmed in their hearing. 
And as God had predicted, they believed for the moment. Kind of can qualify that, isn't that true? As you read through the scripture, you keep thinking, and Israel believed for the moment. <laughs> because it seems two pages later, they're in open rebellion against God. But there's a beautiful statement in verse 31. So the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about the sons of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed low and worshipped. The literal Hebrew word there is prostrated themselves on their faces before God. The people believed. The Hebrew word therefore believe is a word which means to confirm, to have certainty concerning. It's the root word because in transliterated out of the Hebrew, anglicized, it's aman, which in English is amen, which means so be it. So our word amen comes from this Hebrew word, which, meanings, which means they believed. So when we say amen, it's because we believe. We say, so be it, Lord. It is that to which we agree. It does not mean something that we pin our hopes on. Oh, I believe, I think I believe because we hope that God will do something or that somebody will do something. No, it's a word which means I am absolutely convinced positively beyond all doubt that this is true. The world can't understand that kind of faith. We live in a world where nothing is supposed to be, you know, solid. Everything is kind of wishy-washy, easy believism, easy forgetism. We're not accountable to any standard because there are no absolutes. Everything is just kind of, you know, easy come, easy go. But you and I can stand and witness to another person of an assurity that we have in our hearts that cannot be shaken. And they will stand and look us in the eye and they'll say, how in the world can you believe that when there are so many possibilities out there? I mean, who's to say that Jesus is God any more than Buddha is God or Confucius? Even though Confucius and Buddha never claimed to be God, but they have been deified through time. And the same way, well, not exactly with Muhammad, but some people almost hold him as, uh, as divine. I think it's really important for us when we look at this and, and understand this particular event which transpired, that the signs that God gave to Moses were for the purpose of validating, confirming the word of God. The people were not to believe in the sign, but in the word. And that's a very important concept for us. Because we live in a day when there are many quote, evangelical churches who emphasize the sign over the word. It's the sign, the wonder they believe in rather than in the word of God. But that is not the focus. The focus is on the word because the word is eternal. The sign is a transient thing here for the moment to validate, but the word is eternal. It's the word of God. I've heard some people criticize some evangelical churches for being uh, involved in bibliolatry. You ever heard that term, bibliolatry? The worship of the Bible, as if we bow down to the book. 
Well, first of all, I, I can't really see anything particularly wrong with that. <laughs> now, I don't bow down to the book. But it is the word of whom? Of God. <laughs> and if it is the word of God, it's true. And therefore, we should believe it. And we should worship its author. And, of course, the words are divine. The great battle today is to destroy the Bible as a unique book. And to make it a book like any other book. And sometimes we can try to study the form and the style of the Bible to the point where we no longer accept the validity of the word as it is given. There's a point at which I think we're fools if we try to analyze and tear apart the Bible and make it another piece of literature. The belief that these Israelites came to that God had heard their prayers and that God cared about them and that God was about to do something for them engendered a conviction that they were about to be delivered. And as I thought about that, I, I thought, you know, I bet you that their attitude, can we put ourselves in the place of those Israelite leaders? Moses has performed these signs, you know, the withered hand, the leprous hand, on non-leprous, leprous, non-leprous, what do you, would you like now, leprous or non-leprous, you know? Throw the staff down, becomes a serpent, pick it up by its tail, it's solid again. I mean, perform the signs, listen to the word, and to know that God is saying, I am going to deliver you now. That would be like an angel coming into our midst right now and saying, the rapture will be next week. <laughs> really? It would be very, very similar to that. And for us to think, really? <laughs> you mean the Lord is actually going to come Thursday morning? I mean, I'd have a little bit of a question if an angel really did that, but let's say that were possible. That would be an amazing thing. Something that we have thought about, that we've taught about, we've heard taught about, uh, that it's going to become a blessed reality almost momentarily. <laughs> it, it had to be a similar impact upon these Israelites. They had been in, in, in Egypt for over 400 years. They had been in bondage for most of that time. They had cried out to the Lord for all these years and nothing had happened. And now deliverance is at hand. I mean, it must have just thrilled them. They couldn't wait to get back to tell their families and to spread the word that God was about to deliver them. We see the impact because it says at the end of the chapter, they, then they bowed low, fell on their faces before God, and they worshipped Him. We can trivialize worship. We can make worship simply the standing there and, and singing some little chorus and call that worship. It can be worship, but true worship is beyond just that act. It's the attitude of, of the heart of total submission to the awesome God in the universe. Bowing low in total humility for the one who is King and Lord. And understanding that and having that attitude in our heart, that's true worship. And that can come in many forms. It can come while we're singing. It can come as we listen to the word preached. It can come as we bow in prayer. So many different ways in which true worship is manifest. Well, the next page, we're beginning on page 6 of the outline now, chapter 5 of Exodus. I'd like to read the first nine verses. 
And afterward, Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, so that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and besides, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you draw the people away from their work? Get back to your labors. Again Pharaoh said, Look, the people of the land are now many and you would have them cease from their labors? So the same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters over the people and their foremen, saying, You are no longer to give the people straw to make brick as previously. Let them go and gather the straw for themselves. But the quota of bricks which they are making previously, were, were making previously, you shall impose upon them. You are not to reduce any of it, because they are lazy. Therefore they cry out, Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let the labor be heavier on the men, and let them work at it, that they may pay no attention to false words. This chapter and the ones that follow in the book of Exodus contain a story of not only one of the greatest power encounters of history, but one of the greatest tests or trials of faith ever. We're talking about, in, in chapter 5, probably only days after the event at the end of chapter 4. God has sent Moses and Aaron to the leaders of Israel. The leaders of Israel are convinced. A few days later now, God is sending Moses and Aaron on down to Pharaoh. Was Pharaoh at that time at Ramses? Was he at Memphis? We don't know where he was. But probably not real far away. Probably at Ramses. And so God is sending Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh. Their purpose? To demand the release of Israel from captivity. As you read through this passage, I think, first of all, you understand Moses and Aaron were polite as they stood before Pharaoh. And I think they followed protocol to a point. But they did not grovel before Pharaoh. Remember, Pharaoh is a god. He is the son of Horus, the son of Hamun-Ra, the son of God. But they didn't grovel before this man. Why didn't they grovel? Because they were representatives of a far more powerful king, the king of the universe. So why should they grovel before Pharaoh? They faced him boldly. And I think it's really important to note how they began their request. They began their request with the greatest statement of, of authority ever made. The Lord, thus saith the Lord. Thus says the Lord. What higher council of authority is there? What more powerful statement has ever been made? Thus says the Lord. The ultimate source of all authority is God. Now that's caused a lot of theologians to have a lot of problems and to write a lot of books. You know. But that's true. God is the ultimate authority in the universe. And all authority derives from Him. 
Now, he is not responsible for the misuse of authority, but the authority comes from him. And Paul reconfirms this in his writings. God is, as we believe, omnipotent and omniscient. Therefore, those who do not pay heed to what he has to say place themselves in greatest peril. The word of God is the authority for individuals. It's the authority for nations. It's the authority above all for the church universal. It's our authority. And it alone, as I believe most of us probably would attest to, has the power to change lives. It alone has the power to change the course of history, the Word of God. And of course, we're looking at a nation now which is becoming so ignorant of the Word of God and so blatantly rejecting the Word of God that, that we're, we're running into a nation that has no rudder anymore. And it's like a ship in a storm with, with no guidance system at all being tossed about by every wave and, and moving in any direction that the storm may blow it. I, I think it is because the Word of God is that, that, that very basis of our power, the basis of authority, basis of faith. That's the reason Satan fights so hard against it. And it's not always in raising up some kind of a false gospel, you know, the, the Gnostic gospel or the Book of Mormon or something else. It's not just in those ways that he tries to fight against the Word of God. But his most subtle method in fighting against the Word of God is lulling the church to sleep into not believing it needs to pay any attention to the Word of God. That we don't need to study it. That it's not important to learn it. I mean, there's a little testimony to that in the very fact that, for example, not to be stepping in anybody's feet, but when you look at the total attendance in the services, and then you look at the total attendance of adults in Sunday school, you find a big difference. And I'm not saying you don't get the Word of God in church. Certainly we do. But all of us needs that, that greater in-depth time of small group study of the Word, I believe. That's my firm conviction, or else I wouldn't even be doing this. And, and, and you look at the church all around the United States, and, and there are many churches that don't even have Sunday school. And the church service is just a kind of a political rehashing of what the president or the governor did the past week and, and has nothing to do with proclaiming the Word of God. And Satan has the church in his grip when that happens. Because when the Word of God is believed and acted upon, he is defanged and declawed and defeated. And God's power is manifested. God is not a bulldozer. He doesn't come in and just throw everything into the place he wants it. He usually speaks in a still small voice. He will use the two before now and then. But, but he usually speaks in a still small voice. And if people aren't listening, it's to their own peril. It's to our own peril. Satan can strip the church of its power when he convinces the Christian that knowledge of the word is not important to live the Christian life. It's kind of like the person who says, hey, I can be a good Christian and never go to church. Well, I really doubt that's true. I really doubt that's true. Because a good Christian wants to fellowship with other believers, not only because it's, it's ordered in the Scripture, but because that should be the desire of the heart of a true believer, someone who's really walking with God. We weren't made to live in monasteries. 
but to serve in the world. There are so many passages of scriptures with, uh, scripture which talks about the value of the word, but I thought I'd use some of the words of Moses himself. I don't have it on the outline, but uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 11, God through Moses makes a very, very powerful statement which is easily applied to us, I think. Deuteronomy 11:18. You shall therefore impress these words of mine on your heart and on your soul. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall, and what's interesting is you probably have noticed that the uh, Orthodox Jews, uh, they literally tie this little box with scriptures on their arm and on their head. I mean, that's not really what God's saying here. You know, not literally do that and not even pay any attention to what it says or what it means. Uh, and you shall teach them to your sons, talking of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk along the road, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates, so that your days and the days of your sons may be multiplied on the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to give them, as long as the heavens remain above the earth. For if you are careful to keep all this commandment, which I am commanding you, to do it, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and hold fast to him, then the Lord will do what? Well, specifically to Israel, he is saying, drive out all these nations from before you, and you will disp dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. Every place in which the sole of your foot shall tread shall be yours. Your border shall be from the wilderness of Lebanon, from the river, the river Euphrates, as far as the western sea. There shall no man be able to stand before you. The Lord your God shall lay the dread of you and the fear of you on the land on which you set foot, as he has spoken to you. Now, we can put ourselves in there and, and, and understand that even though there is a physical thing being talked about here, there behind it is a greater thing, a spiritual thing. Because even though they would drive out these nations and possess their land literally, how did they drive out the nations? By the power of God, it was a spiritual war. And possessing the land, yes, they actually possessed acres of dirt, which they grew crops on, but possessing the land that was dominated by the enemy. So we translate that into our day, and we understand we're talking about the strongholds of Satan. We're talking about a nation which is, is more and more becoming dedicated to the evil one being taken over by new age philosophy, which is really old age theology. And these, you know, it says, every place the sole of your foot shall tread shall be yours. Are we possessing the land? Is the church moving forward? Is the dread of you and the fear of you on the land? They laugh at the church today. Those evangelical kooks, you know. And in many cases, the evangelical kooks aren't doing anything either about things that need action and prayer. Why? Because the Word of God has become diminished. The Word of God has been set aside often by political arguments and uh, governmental issues and other things that, you know, that's not the priority of the church. Prior to the church is to proclaim the word of God and let God change things through prayer. So Satan knows where to strike.
it strikes at the very center. He attacks the word, the, the desire to study it, the belief that it's important to study it, and he attacks prayer. If he can shackle us in those two areas, the church is his. And the church will accomplish nothing. The church will go nowhere. If we don't hear or heed the thus saith the Lord, what we do is open our hearts and our minds and our church to compromise with the world. And compromise, as you know, is deadly. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness, have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? And then in the next verse he goes on to say, And what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Now that doesn't just mean in marriage or in a business partnership. That means in any kind of a commitment which involves spiritual action specifically, but even beyond that, what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? It reminds me of the illustration, I don't even remember who used it first, but a person who uh, took a, a little glass of ink and a little glass of pure water and an eyedropper. You remember that illustration? And you take the eyedropper and you put it in the pure water and you suck up some and you drop it in the ink. Does it change the ink? Well, sure, if you took a chemical analysis of it, you'd discover the ink was slightly less diluted. But to your eye, does there seem to be any difference? No. But you take one dropper full of ink and put it in a glass of pure water and instantly you see a difference. And that's the illustration of the believer and the unbeliever. When the believer compromises with the world, it's not the world that's improved. It's the believer that is pulled down. We stand at a place where there is no compromise. And Moses didn't walk up to Pharaoh and say, by the way, Pharaoh, if you let the people go, uh, we'll build you an extra city. We'll put a nice pyramid over here with your picture on top. You know, carve it, your face on the top. No. He didn't plea bargain with Pharaoh. He simply said, thus says the Lord. And what does the Lord say? I think Moses and Aaron stood tall before Pharaoh and said, the Lord says, let my people go. Whose people? Pharaoh's people? Moses' people? The Lord's people. God said, let my people go. The request was simple, straightforward. Pharaoh couldn't miss it. It's obvious from his response. You want me to let these people actually physically leave here, stop work and go? He got the point. That's what God was saying. Now, Pharaoh knew that the various gods of Egypt had to be worshipped in different ways. And they had different requirements and different venues for worship. So this wasn't totally strange to Pharaoh. Now, this, this idea that a god might want them to go out someplace and worship him for a period of time. If he'd have been a wise Pharaoh, he would have said things like this. What harm is there 
and letting them go out in the wilderness and worship together and celebrate, have a good time for a week or so, and then come back and work. Maybe they'll be better workers. Maybe they'll be happier. Maybe they'll work harder. Hey, maybe that's not a bad idea. Maybe I should do that. Besides, if their God is really requiring this, dare I oppose him? Dare I oppose him? Did Pharaoh think those thoughts? No, I don't think so. L let, me, <laughs> let me give you a list of four thoughts that I think Pharaoh thought. First of all, I think he thought, if I let the Israelites go for several days, the work projects will fall behind schedule. Now, those of you who are in construction or in government activities know what that's all about. You know, falling behind schedule. I wouldn't want that to happen, you know. Secondly, and this may be even more importantly, if I comply with this request, it will be setting a precedent. And they'll come back to me later and say, oh, by the way, Pharaoh, we'd like to go for a month over here and do this. And, you know, you let us go for a week back there, remember? Thirdly, I'm sure he thought, I am the son of God. If anybody ought to be worshipped, it's me. Not some invisible God they claim they believe. I am the visible God. Why are they not worshipping and celebrating me? And then I think the final nail, if you will, that Satan drove in here was the doubt that God really was what he claimed to be. And, and this is what happened in the Garden of Eden, right? Did God really say? And so Satan comes and says to, to Pharaoh in his ear, If this God of Israel is so powerful, how come his people are enslaved in Egypt? Obviously the Egyptian gods are more powerful. So why should you pay attention to him? Why? Well, I think Pharaoh had such thoughts. And with such thoughts, he was firmly in the grip of the enemy. Let me ask you, of all the... Now, let's, let's think about who Satan is. Not, not too hard, but just in a general way. Satan is a powerful spiritual being. He is able to move virtually at will around the universe, it seems. But he is not omnipotent, omnipresent, or omniscient because those are attributes of God alone. He, can, he does not have all power. He has only what power God allows him. He is not omniscient. He does not know everything. There are a lot of things he doesn't know. And thirdly, he is not omnipresent. Now, we may think he is, but he's not. Satan can only be one place at one time. Of course, he has lots of minions all around the world who carry out his little doings. But where would Satan himself be at this great moment? Off convincing some idolaters over in some corner of the world to be more idolatrous? Nah. It's kind of like convincing a drunk to be more drunk. No, he's not bothering with that. He's going to be on the cutting edge of God's work. Where God is at work, he's at work. Because he knows that's where he can do the greatest damage. I mean, he's really into damage control. <laughs> and, you know, he has his own kingdom, and he's, he's going to try to, to stop God's work wherever he can. Now, he knows he can't stop God, 
but he knows that we can be stopped. As Jesus said to his disciples, O ye of little faith, and our faith is often weak. And, and Satan will convince us that our faith should be weak because did God really say that you ought to do this or that or the other thing? Wherever God is manifesting his presence and empowering his people, that's where you can expect the enemy to be. Where Billy Graham is preaching a powerful sermon and men and women are being drawn to Christ, you can believe that's where Satan's going to be. He's going to be where the action is, so to speak. And he will do his best to hinder the work. So the Spirit of God is there in Aaron and in Moses, but the Spirit of Satan is indwelling Pharaoh. And what Pharaoh is doing and what Pharaoh is thinking is empowered by Satan himself. And so we have a great confrontation here. And, and I certainly we're reminded of Ephesians chapter 6 where we read it so often. For we wrestle not with flesh and blood. I frequently have to remind myself of this and I, I trust you do too. Remind yourself when that idiot cuts you off in traffic when that person yells at you on the phone, when your kid does something you're about ready to disown him, that we're not wrestling with flesh and blood. Really, behind it is spiritual warfare if you are a believer. We wrestle not with flesh and blood, but against what? The rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. We wrestle against these powers. It is not, if you'll pardon the expression, Charlton Heston and Yul Brenner facing off <laughs> high noon, you know. It is the almighty God of the universe facing the great red dragon of Revelation chapter 12. And of course, if we believe the scripture, we know the conclusion is foregone. The victory is God's. But the battle still has to be fought. Notice Pharaoh's response in chapter 5, verse 2. Who is the Lord? And I think he spit it out. Who's the Lord? Anyway, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I don't know this Lord of yours. Who's Yahweh anyway? He's not in our pantheon. He's not worshipped in Egypt. And certainly because I am the son of Amun-Ra, Horus in the flesh, if you will, if I don't know who he is, he doesn't exist. It's kind of interesting. Mo, uh, Pharaoh is not here denying Moses and Aaron's credentials. He's not saying, you don't represent God, you're just a bunch of... Of, of slaves, you got to get back to work. He doesn't say that. He goes beyond that. Not denying their credentials, but denying the God they claim to represent. God has no meaning to me, and therefore he has no authority here. This is really a very important concept. Very, very important concept. Because that's what plagues the United States of America today. This very idea. Why do most Americans ignore God? Because he has no meaning to them. Most people in the world ignore God because they don't believe he has any authority. 
or even any existence. This is part of the lie which has come into existence from the beginning. If you, if you read, you'll discover that every society ever studied, the implication is that that society at one time originally believed in a single supreme God. Every society was originally monotheistic. And through time, have devolved into polytheism, pantheism, and spiritism. Now Darwin, when he came along, predicted exactly the opposite. He said, <clears throat> original societies of, you know, knuckle-draggers came along and they began to believe in spirits, you know, and uh, 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 and then they developed into a kind of a pantheistic theology. Then they began to develop gods, polytheistic gods, and then they decided to pick one and make him the supreme god. That was the evolutionary theory, but it's, it's exactly the opposite of what they have actually found out there. Anthropologists have discovered that as you go back you to, uh, in time, it becomes more, uh, the religion of the culture becomes more monotheistic, a belief ultimately originally in the one supreme god which we know to be true from reading Genesis. And when Nimrod turned his back on God and began to lead people astray, this, this developed. And we live in a country today which has rejected God and become basically atheistic in action, if not in word. Well, I think I'll pick that, this theme up next week because I don't have time to say everything I want to say here. So we'll start with that thought next Sunday.